The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. The voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. Now the rest of this from verses 9 through 13 completes the story, but we're going to talk about those verses more at a later time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have together. We, we praise you, Lord, for this great passage of Scripture that we have before us. Help us to achieve some understanding of what you'd have us to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Before I begin this message today, I, I have just one word that I want to say to you. And that's the word overwhelmed. I am overwhelmed by this subject that we had to talk about today and this passage of scripture. You know, the Bible is just really an amazing book. Uh, no matter where you start, no matter where you go in it, the Bible is just simply too high. It's too holy for us. No matter where you turn in scripture, you are in the presence of the holy God. When you walked into this building this morning, you walked into the presence of God. Now, of course, God is everywhere, but there's a special sense that when you come into a place where God's people are meeting, that the Holy Spirit is there meeting with them. And so we are right now in the presence of the almighty God of this universe. Well, God is everywhere. And when I come into the pulpit here in Briam Baptist Church, there's always this sense of inadequacy to deal with God's word. And that inadequacy becomes starkly apparent at more times than others. And this is one of those times. We have a passage of scripture here that is just simply a magnificent portion of scripture. I've been studying the transfiguration of Christ. And as I've been doing that, I've been really stunned by the amount of profound teaching that comes from this passage. Now, there are times when when I, I just don't know how to stop talking about the Word of God and what we're learning here. Now, I know there are times when you just wish, well, would you shut up for a little while and we're done with that subject, would you please move on? Well, this is one that I don't know that I could ever tell you enough about this. I don't know if I could talk about it enough about it. I don't even know if I can tell you what I want to say about it in these messages that we're going to deal with this transfiguration. Now, there's a lot to talk about here, but I believe if I were to ask you... Uh, you're Christians in here this morning, and I hope that all of you are, but if I were to ask you, how many of you have heard a sermon on the transfiguration of Christ? And I don't mean in the context of another sermon. I mean, when have you heard a sermon that dealt specifically with the transfiguration of Christ? Well, I, I would have to say, looking back over 50 years of Christian service and knowing the Lord in that amount of time, and even before that, actually, because I grew up in a Christian home in a pastor's family, I would have to say I cannot remember a sermon, an entire sermon that dealt with the transfiguration of Christ. And I don't mean that I'm better than 
other preachers, and I'm not indicting anyone or not trying to make an indictment against my own Bible teachers and good preacher friends that I have, I don't remember hearing a sermon on this. And I don't, if we weren't studying verse by verse in the book of Matthew, I probably wouldn't be here either. Uh, maybe we would refer to it at different times, but to preach on exactly what happened here, well, I, I can't remember a time when that's been done. But this is an event that impacted Peter so much that it became the basis of two New Testament books. I mean, if you look at the First Peter and Second Peter, you'll see that in, in those letters that Peter wrote, there was encouragement to Christians to live in the light of the glorious coming of Jesus Christ. And what event was it that Peter used as the visual verification that Jesus was coming again? Do you know what it was? This is what he says in Second Peter chapter 1. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Now as you read about the life of Christ, we all know that the incarnation of Christ was a very important event. We just came through Christmas and we talked much about the incarnation. We know that the baptism of Christ was a very important event. We have no doubt that the crucifixion was important. The resurrection is important. The ascension of Christ is important. All of those things, I mean, those doctrines about resurrection, baptism, about the ascension of Christ, incarnation of Christ, all of those things are essential components of the Christian faith. But what is that one doctrine that really puts the light in your eyes and the joy of God in your heart now that you know Jesus Christ? What is that doctrine? Well, I would have to say it's the second coming of Christ. It's the belief that we have down in our heart that we know that Jesus is coming again. And so our hope that we have is now in the coming kingdom of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And do you realize that Jesus even taught us to pray this way? He said, you pray to the Father and you say to him, thy kingdom come. That's one of the main things that we ought to be praying about when we go to the Lord. We ought to pray that his kingdom would come. I remember when I was young that we used to sing a song that said, the kingdom is coming. Oh, tell you the story. God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Now the transfiguration of Christ was just a soul-thrilling assurance for the disciples because here they learned that although God's kingdom was delayed, that it wasn't coming when they expected it to come, yet they knew that it would come. Now let me set the stage for you this morning for this wonderful event in this part of Matthew's Gospel. Here, Jesus is winding down his ministry. He's coming to the last days of his ministry on this earth. For two years, he'd been walking with his disciples. He had been teaching them. He had been uh, training them, being an example to them as the way that they should be. He crisscrossed Galilee many times, healing people and just really just giving ample evidence, more evidence than was ever needed that he was the true Messiah that came into the world. 
But despite all of those marvelous works that Christ had done, there really wasn't any widespread acceptance of him as the Messiah. The religious leaders certainly didn't receive him. They were more interested in getting rid of him. They were jealous of him. And that's because at every turn, Jesus was confronting their hypocrisy and dealing with their false interpretations of Scripture. So religious leaders, they weren't welcoming of him. The people seemed to be a little bit more welcoming, but they didn't understand him either. They, they really wanted someone to feed them. They wanted a political savior. They weren't really interested in what he had to offer as far as the salvation of the soul and the perfect righteousness that God demands of the heart. And Jesus knew where all of that was leading because he's God. And he knew that there was not going to be this widespread acceptance and turning to him as the Messiah King at this time. And so he knew that this was not the time to bring his kingdom into the world. People's hearts were not going to be turned to him. Uh, Their self-righteousness would still reign. And so these people are not really interested in the true righteousness that saves their souls. And so from this point... Jesus began to remove himself from the crowds. He would still have some interaction with them, but his main concentration in these final days of his ministry upon the earth was to stay with his disciples, to prepare them for his departure, that he was going to the cross, he was going to rise from the grave, and he would ascend back to the Father. And he's trying to make that point clear to them so they understand this. When Peter made his great confession in chapter 16 and verse 16, that signaled the end of Christ's former ministry. Uh, The crowds, the ministry to them was virtually over. And so in verse number 21, we come to that verse, and, and it says here, From that time forth, Jesus began Jesus to show unto his disciples that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Although Jesus had spoken of his death in veiled references, now he begins to be very clear about what he must do. And the disciples that had hoped for the immediate kingdom began to see that this was not going to happen. In fact, Jesus told them there would be much suffering before the kingdom comes. And he, and he said, that suffering is not only mine, not only do I have to die, but you're going to have to suffer also. That there's a cross for you as well. And these disciples must be willing to give all to him, to surrender all to him, to forsake all that they have in order to come into that future kingdom. Now you can imagine at this time he has a very dejected group of disciples. They thought that Jesus was close to making a change in his ministry, that he would go in a different direction. And they felt that they were so close, just so close to this, when he fed the 5,000. Because when that was over, the people began to, uh, to rush sort of to him, swell towards him, and they wanted to make him the king right then. And they thought, well, surely Jesus will take the opportunity that he'll take charge and he will become our king. But instead of coming in and ushering in the kingdom, there was a change, all right, but it wasn't the change that was expected. They got this change, verses 21 through 26. And in those verses is rejection and suffering and death, not only for Jesus, but also for them. And so after what appeared to be terrible news Jesus spoke to them, verse number 27. This dejected group now hears Jesus say, 
For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall record, reward every man according to his works. Now in that statement, Jesus gave them hope because what he's doing here is he gives them a renewed promise of the kingdom. He renews the promise of the kingdom that had been given by God so many hundreds of years before. So not only did Jesus speak very clearly about his death, but this is the first time in the book of Matthew that Jesus began to speak very clearly about the second coming. Now on one hand, there's suffering and death and there's a cross that comes before the crown and that looks like the end of the kingdom before it can even begin. And the disciples were not quite sure, how is this all going to work together? How can a crucifixion actually work into the coming kingdom? And to be totally transparent about that, they never did understand it during Jesus' earthly ministry. It wasn't until after he died and after he had risen from the grave that the Holy Spirit came and he began to recall to their minds all the words that Jesus spoke concerning this kingdom, all these things that he said prior, the teachings he said prior to his death of the cross. And then those things started to become clear to them. It was not until then that they also became teachers of the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ and doing what we find Peter doing in Second Peter chapter 3. In the 27th verse, Jesus gave them some, some information here that really did show that the king is coming. In that 27th verse, he said, The Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And to be quite honest about that, that's not earth-shattering news. This is not something they hadn't heard before. The Old Testament scriptures are replete with this kind of information. Plenty of information about the Messiah. And And it says in so many places that the Messiah would come in power and glory. In the Old Testament, there are over 1,500 references to the second coming of Christ. If you wanted to list the most important doctrines that you find in Scripture, and if you could say, well, the ones that are talked about are the most important, then you would say number one on that list is faith, because faith is spoken more of than any other thing in the entire Bible. But close behind it, number two, is this doctrine of the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. His second coming. That's the second most prominent doctrine that's taught in all of Scripture. For every verse that we have for Christ coming in the first advent, there are eight verses that speak of Christ coming in the second advent. And so the coming of Christ, that's not really a mystery to them. Jesus wasn't giving new information. But the important point that needed to be understood by what he said is that these disciples must understand that he is this Messiah. They're not waiting for another to come. They're not looking for someone else who would do what Jesus couldn't do. And this transfiguration of Jesus was the visible evidence of his claims. Now, later in the midst of the transfiguration, Peter made another one of his horrible gaffes. He pushed Jesus down to the level of the prophets, and that was a point that he'd personally denied when he made his earlier confession. So Jesus had to be very clear that he is the Messiah that's spoken of in the Old Testament. So he renewed the promise of the second coming and he put himself into this role as the righteous king who will return to the earth in power and glory. 
Now I want you to notice how he does this. How, how does Jesus instill this kind of hope in the disciples and cause them to understand that he is this great king? How is he going to show them that he will come in power and glory? Well, I, I'm spending time here laying the groundwork for this and trying to help you to understand it because this information is actually critical to the hope of every Christian. Now, our circumstances may not be the same as the apostles. It's different from theirs, but we're not different in this because I think that there are a lot of Christians today, maybe even in our group this morning, that are dejected, that Christians are in a malaise. There is a sense of hopelessness in some people who are the children of God. If you're suffering through this hard economy, if you feel that there's nothing that's working for your good, if you have family problems, if there are hurt feelings, if everywhere that you turn there's heartache, then you need to hear what happened to these disciples on this mountain. Now, this is really the very thing that builds our hope. Our hope is for the return of Jesus Christ. And if you understand that and you know what he's going to do and you believe that he's coming back, there is nothing in the world that can keep you down. Now, first of all, we see that Jesus said to them, the Son of Man shall come. And that's a very important statement. The Son of Man shall come. 32 times in the book of Matthew, Jesus used this term, the Son of Man. More than any other, Jesus liked this term. And you know why? Because this is the best term that he could use to to describe himself in his current bodily form. He was God incarnate. He calls himself the Son of Man. And that is a, a term that means the Son of God veiled in the robe of human flesh. That the glory of Christ was hidden And soon that glory would come bursting forth in a dazzling display of blinding light. And he didn't want the disciples to miss that connection. He was God in the flesh. And so he says, the Son of Man. And that's an unmistakable reference to him as God. The Jewish leaders understood that. They just went into all kinds of contortions when Jesus used this terminology because they knew that he was saying he was God. Now notice what Daniel says in Daniel chapter 7. There, here, here Daniel sees this vision of the glorious king and he sees him sitting in judgment over the whole world at the consummation of the ages. And Daniel seeing that writes, I saw in the night visions and behold one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Now, do you understand who that is? Who is he speaking of? Well, in Matthew 16, Jesus refers to himself as this great king that we see in the book of Daniel. Don't let anybody tell you that Jesus is not God. Don't let anybody tell you that he is a created being. Don't let anyone tell you that he came into existence when he was born in Bethlehem in the manger because he did not. He is the ever-living God. And he didn't want his disciples to miss the reference. He is the Son of Man. Now, he was going to Jerusalem to die, but that wouldn't stop the kingdom from coming. 
That wasn't an obstacle to it. His death wasn't an obstacle. But his death and his resurrection were actually the upward thrust of the scepter of Jesus Christ as the king. That's the thing that's going to make him victorious over all, over sin, death, and hell. He must be crucified. He must go into the grave. He must arise from the dead because he is the son of man who will come in great glory. He said, I'm the son of man. Then he made another astounding statement. He said here, I will come in the glory of the Father. Now, in other words, what he's saying here is that he will come with the attributes of the Almighty. The attributes of the Almighty. Now, how important is that? Well, they were looking at a man, weren't they? They saw a man who is in the flesh. They couldn't tell that there was any any difference in him. And he dressed the same as they did. He came from a nondescript town, really a notorious little place that had a terrible reputation. His enemies would announce him. They would say, this is Jesus of Nazareth. And the reason that they brought in his hometown was because that's just a little extra goad against his claims that he was actually God, that he was the Messiah. You remember that even Nathaniel, one of his chosen disciples, said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So they could have walked around Jesus a hundred times. They could have examined him closely, looked at him from every conceivable angle, and never once would they be able to see a glimpse of his glory. And that's because his glory was covered up. Do you remember that the prophet said that there was no beauty in him? There was no human beauty in him. Artists paint these pictures that they call Jesus and they paint him with a lovely face with finely chiseled features. He looks like the Fabio of religion. But that's not the Bible's description of him. The Bible says there is no beauty in him. That means there is no human beauty. So you weren't going to find a person that saw Jesus coming and they would say, wow, there goes Jesus. And they're all enthralled and enraptured with this beautiful man that passes by like he's a sissy man like Brad Pitt. Let's put Jesus on a magazine cover. And so everybody just had to follow Jesus everywhere he went because they couldn't resist his charm. No, that's not what would attract people to Jesus at all. He said, I am coming in the glory of my Father. Now, in our text, he's actually speaking in the third person, but the whole point of that was he was declaring his deity. What is the glory of the Father? What does he mean by that? Well, that's a very interesting statement because glory is really important. That's an important concept when we speak of God because do you know what the glory of God is? The glory of God equals the effulgent manifestation of all his divine attributes. It's all wrapped up in his glory. And the full manifestation of the glory of God are the characteristics that distinguish him from all of his creatures. God's glory separates him from all others. His glory is what makes him the object of worship and the object of praise. Do you know why an idol should never be worshipped? It's because there is no glory. No man should ever be worshipped because there is no glory. There is no other God that anyone has ever invented or thought about that had any glory but our God. This is why Paul said that an idol is a dumb thing. 
Jeremiah made fun of the gods of the heathens. He said, For the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers that it move not. They are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born, because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither also is it in them to do good. For as much as there is none like unto thee, O Lord, thou art great, and thy name is great in might. God is great in glory. Now his glory is always spoken of in scripture as a brilliant light. That's the manifestation of the glory of God. When Moses was up on Mount Sinai and he received the commandments, what did God do? He hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and then he let his glory pass before him. Moses could not look into the face of God. He couldn't see that full manifestation of God's glory. All that Moses could do was stand behind the rocks and see the aura of the glory of God as it passed by. And so do you see what Jesus is doing as he talks about this? He's saying in another way, I am God. That he will come in glory with a brilliant light. He has the glory of the Father. And no one has that. No one has the attributes of God but God. And that tells us that Jesus is God. Listen to this description of heaven that we're given in the book of Revelation. It says, And the city, that is, the new Jerusalem, and the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Let me stop right there. You want a, you want a verse that will just pound Jehovah Witnesses? There's one. The glory of God did lighten it, and it follows that up with the Lamb is the light thereof. What does that mean? That means the Lamb is God. It's talking about Jesus. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. Why? Because of the glory of God. The light of the glory of God lightens the place of heaven. No need of the sun, the moon, or the stars, because the Lamb is the light thereof. Now, does that help you as a Christian? You've received Christ as your Savior. Do you realize the person that you put all of your confidence in? Why have you rejected all the false claims of all the other gods of the other religions? Why do you confidently claim your Christianity and you have this full assurance that you are saved, that you know that you're God's child, that you know that you'll be in heaven, and that you'll know you'll be in a different place from those who reject Jesus Christ? How do you know that? Well, how about this? How about glory? Nobody has it but Jesus, and Jesus is God. So he says to the disciples, don't worry about the crucifixion. Don't worry about the kingdom, because I have glory. I will come in glory. Now, Luke says it a little bit differently, and it's interesting the way that he puts it. He says the Son of Man will come in his own glory and with the glory of the Father. But I will come with glory. In about eight days, he gave them a visible demonstration of it. He came in the glory of the Father. He said in Matthew chapter 24, For the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. You know, I feel sorry for Californians. 
more ways than one. But I feel sorry for Californians. That's because we, we're living here in the land of earthquakes. I come from the land of tornadoes. And tornadoes are much better. Tornadoes are much better. I mean, there's nothing like the brilliant flashes of light when that storm begins to come and a tornado begins to form. The brilliant flashes of light and the, re, and the resultant peals of thunder. When an earthquake comes, the building just falls down. But when a tornado comes, we get the full show. We get the brilliant flashes of light and the thunder. And we get out the popcorn and we hold up a tin for each one of those. And say, yeah, that was a good one. And when an earthquake comes, you, you, you think of the Antichrist. I mean, in the tribulation, the Bible says there'll be all kinds of earthquakes. When a tornado comes, we think of Jesus. In more ways than one, but we think of Jesus when a tornado comes. I mean, we see the lightning and we think about Jesus come. We hear the thunder. We see the flashes of light. As the lightning comes out of the east and shines to the west, even so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So California is the land of the Antichrist. Kentucky is the land with a little taste of heaven. That's the difference. But he's not through with these disciples yet. He's in the process of renewing this promise of the kingdom. He talks about the Son of Man is coming. He says, I'm coming with the glory of the Father. And then he says that he will be accompanied by angels. He's coming with angels. Think a moment about angels. Now, most of the time when we think about angels, we get a picture in our mind, and, and the pictures that have been made are always these sweet, lovely women, satin wings, halos over their heads. Soon it's going to be Valentine's Day, and you'll see all the little cupids with the dainty arrows of love. Take a moment to read the Bible's description of angels. Now, sometimes angels appear as men in Scripture. They never appear as women. They have physical characteristics of men, and that's uh, only for the accommodation of our senses. But take a moment to read what the Bible has to say about how God sees the angels, how they really do appear. Let's look at that a minute. Turn your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 1. And there are several descriptions that we can find in the Bible of angels, but this is one that we'll pick out. The disciples would have been familiar with this, and they would have this in their minds. They, they wouldn't have in their minds the picture of women with, with a halo and the wings. That's not, what, that's not what's on their mind. They, they didn't have those contemporary preach, uh, pictures like we have. Instead, they're thinking, what does the Bible say? Well, what's an angel going to look like? When he says, I'm coming with angels, what are they thinking? Well, we have a description here in Ezekiel of the highest order of angels, and that's the cherubim. And they're seen in this vision that Ezekiel has in chapter 1 as he's allowed to see into the throne room of God. So the heavens are opened up and he sees angels. Now look down at verse number 5. It says, Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. Now he's talking about angels. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. And every one had four faces, and every one had four wings, and their feet were straight feet, and the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like the color of burnished brass. And they had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides, and they four had their faces and their wings. Their wings were joined one to another. They turned not when they went. They went every one straight forward." As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side, they four also had the face of an eagle. 
Thus were their faces, and their wings were stretched upward. Two wings of every one were joined one to another, and two covered their bodies. I don't think that the disciples would be any too crazy about running up on an angel in the middle of the night. Four faces, the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, the face of an eagle, feet that are like calves' feet, four wings with men's hands under those wings. They weren't expecting to see a a chubby-faced Cupid. Now, when Christ comes, he's coming with an army of these angels and an army that is so vast that you won't even be able to count them. Daniel says thousands, thousands ministered unto him and then thousands times 10,000 stood before him. In Revelation 5, it says, And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels about the throne and the beast and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Now, do you see the image that Jesus is planning in the minds of these disciples? Thousands of these angels, ten thousands of the angels, hundreds of thousands of angels, they're coming back with him in glory. Can you imagine even having the power of one angel? Much less to think hundreds and hundreds of thousands of angels. So there's no need for them to be dejected because he had to go to Jerusalem to die. They don't need to be disheartened because he said, well, you have to experience the cross before the crown. No, God is coming and God is speaking to them. He is God incarnate. Now, fourthly and finally for this morning, his glory will be attested by the apostles. He says in verse 28, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, if you've ever studied this, you'll find that This is a verse that gives commentators fits. They are trying to figure out what does he mean when he says that some of you that are standing here, you will not taste of death, but you will see the Son of Man in his glory. And they think that maybe he's saying, well, these disciples, some of them are going to be alive when the Romans come in A.D. 70 and they destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And that will be God judging the present state of Israel and that will be God coming in glory. Would that be good news for the disciples? Is that the thing that they want to hear? They're looking for the restoration of the kingdom. They're not looking for the destruction of Israel. They're looking for Israel to be restored to their kingdom. There's nothing in the Bible that says anything at all about the king making an appearance when Jerusalem was destroyed. Nothing about angels is written about that. Some say it's the resurrection and it's the ascension of Christ. But that wasn't Jesus coming. That was Jesus going. And then there are some who say, well, no, this means Pentecost. It means the coming of the Holy Spirit. But that's the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's not Jesus the king coming. So you wonder, why do commentators stumble over this? Because at all three places where this is recorded, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them where the transfiguration is recorded, the sequence is exactly the same. Now, we have a problem here in Matthew because there's a division between 16 and 17 between those two chapters. Those divisions are not put there by 
God. Those were put in by men. That's an unfortunate division that we have. So we have the sequence exactly the same that Jesus says he will come in the glory with come in glory with angels he said some of you will not die before you see the kingdom of god and then boom right in the next scene they're headed up on this mountain where Jesus is transfigured and so the dejected disciples had their spirits lifted they've received a guarantee from Jesus and we could call that a gratuitous guarantee Because he shouldn't have had to give it. They should have believed it just for the sake that he said it. And that's why we believe him. We believe him just for the sake that he said it. We don't have to see things with our eyes. But Jesus gave them something. He did more for them. He renewed the promise and he gave them this sight of him being transfigured so they would never have to doubt another word that he said was true. And this is what Peter wrote in 2 Peter. We were with him in the Holy Mount. We saw him transfigured in glory. We heard the voice of God the Father. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Why is that so important for for you and me? Well, we're going to get to it more at a later time. But let me give you a hint of things to come. This is important because what Jesus became on that mountain is what he promised to every believer in him. You may be struggling. You're having a hard time making it through. You have problems. You have disappointments. And there are some preachers that want to try to help you through those problems. And so they say, well, if you want to get through your problems, increase your faith. Have enough faith and then God will make you prosperous. God will give you all the stuff that you want if you just believe strongly enough. Well, let's apply that theory to the apostles. The disciples didn't believe it strongly enough. They're all confused. They're all jumbled up in their thinking. Their ideas of the kingdom has just been sunk beneath the weight of a promise of suffering and dying. To them... It looks like there will not be a kingdom. So Jesus said, let me do something about that. You're going to have faith increase beyond your wildest imagination. You will see the Son of Man coming in glory. You will see the kingdom of God. And then what else? That glorified body that Jesus was transfigured into, we get it too. We get a glorified body. Now I want you to turn to one more scripture. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we'll finish here. The disciples got this message about suffering. They heard Jesus talk about troubles. They heard him speak about giving up their lives in order to save their souls. That was hard talk. It was very discouraging talk. And you may think the same thing. Living this Christian life is hard. There are enemies on every side. Troubles are everywhere. Well, there was a group of Christians in Thessalonica that had it so bad. Things were so bad where they lived that they thought they had missed the second coming of Christ. They believed that they were actually living in the tribulation. That Jesus had come and they'd missed it. They didn't even know about it. Things were so hard that they thought that they were living in that time that we see described in the book of Revelation, this terrible time of tribulation. So Paul wrote to them to settle them down and let them know that this promise is still good. Jesus is coming. It will be grand and glorious for you when he comes. You don't have to worry about going through that tribulation. He's still coming. So let's read this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. 
He says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Now, let me stop there. Do you see what he's telling you there? Suffering's not bad. Suffering's not a terrible thing to happen for a Christian. God is making you worthy of his kingdom. Trials actually make you appreciate the coming of Jesus Christ. This is what happens to a lot of Christians. If, if everything is going fine, if you have all the money that you ever wanted, if everything is smooth sailing everywhere you go, then what happens to you? You stop thinking about Christ. You start to depend upon yourself. You don't think about him. You don't think about needing help. You don't pray. And so God sends trials. He sends suffering. He sends all of these things that cause you to be dependent upon him and to cause you to look for the coming of Christ. We say, even so, come, Lord Jesus, because we know what this life is like. We, want, we know what we want to be delivered from. We don't want to live here. Verse 6, he says, Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Wherefore, also, we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming. I'm overwhelmed by that. Aren't you? But think about what he's promised these disciples, the Son of Man coming in glory with all of his heavenly angels. He's coming back. The lightning will shine from the east to the west, he says. And that's not going to be a tornado. When this one comes, it's not a tornado. That is Jesus Christ coming in glory. Brilliant glory. So, the lightning that you see, the light, that's the glory of Christ. The thunder that you hear, that's going to be the shout of the archangel, the trumpet of God when he comes back. Do you know that you're going up when he comes down? Do you know that? Jesus is giving us information here that says you can know this. You can know that when he comes back, when he comes down, that you can go up. How do you know it? Repent of your sins. Trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Believe in him that he's the only one that can save you from your sins. Put all of your hope and your confidence in him. And then you know when he comes back, when he comes down, you can go up. He's telling us, you will be with me in glory. I hope you know Jesus today. You can be with him in glory. That's the promise that he gives in these verses. Deject the disciples no more. 
Finally, they will see the glory of Jesus Christ. And we'll get more into that next week. Father, thank you for the time that we look into your word. And we are, again, overwhelmed by what we see here. We can't describe the glory of Jesus Christ. We, we can't really get the, the image, the visual picture of Christ coming back and what that glory is. We don't understand all about the angels. We don't understand everything that's going to happen. But we do know that you have promised us, if we would trust you, that we would see you in glory. We can't describe the happiness of that. We can't describe the sublimity of it. Lord, we just pray you'd open up hearts today. Christians would be encouraged. We pray that they would be drawn closer to you. They would keep looking for you to come in glory. Keep praying that the kingdom would come. And Lord, may that make a change in our lives. It should. And then we ask, Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as Savior, that they would begin to understand this. Now, as I've been preaching the message today, I know that there have been some that have not been paying attention. There's some who thought that this was just a silly thing to talk about, a time to joke and talk to one another. All are going to give an account to God. You are coming in glory. We need that vision. People need to see that because when you come in glory, judgment also comes. Lord, we pray that our judgment will be a judgment of righteousness, a judgment for believing in you and knowing that you are our Savior. Speak to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.